Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Uh, David Enrich is the author of Dark Towers, and he joins us today. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a Russian laundromat from 2011 to 2014. $80 billion gets uh, moved through all of this, this money laundering scheme. This all does seem to dovetail at the same time that people like Jeffrey Epstein and people like Donald Trump were in bed with Deutsche Bank as well. Do you see any connection between their banking and uh, and their banking with Deutsche Bank and the actual laundromat that was discovered um, between 2011 and 2014? What, just, first of all, not really is the bottom line. I mean, mm -hmm. there are, which is, does not mean it doesn't exist. It means that their like, evidence of that is very hard to find if it exists at all. And look, there are like 15 different money laundering, get money, get rubles into dollars or euros schemes going on inside Deutsche Bank kind of at different and overlapping periods uh, from very early in the 2000s until very recently. And it, um, and the, the thing that unites all of them and also unites the fact that they were doing business with Epstein and Trump at a time when no one else would is that Deutsche Bank was willing to take risks and do business with people that were just completely preposterous to the rest of the financial community. And so, you know, there's a reason that they were one of the few banks helping violate sanctions in Iran and Syria. Like, it's because most other banks were scared of the US coming down hard on them and so steered clear of it. Deutsche Bank did. And there's a reason that they were banking Jeffrey Epstein when no one else would because of it would be a criminally convicted, uh, you know, sex criminal. Like, there's no one else wanted to touch him at that point. Or, J.P. Morgan kind of did, but for a while, yeah. by 2013, no one else wanted. No to one, no him. one wanted to do any work with him, and then suddenly they pick him up. Right, and it, and, and in some ways, the Epstein thing is—it's like a little, maybe a little less potent than Trump because Trump is president and Epstein is dead. But the, uh, to me, the Epstein example is actually probably the most telling example of moral and ethical failure at the bank and because they when they took him on in early 2013 as a client he had just been he was out of most of the financial system for since 2008 when he was convicted of sex crimes but he he stuck around with jp morgan until end of 2012 early 2013 at which point they too booted him out and the fact that deutsche bank at that point knowing every, a simple google search would have very clearly identified who jeffrey epstein was and the problems of doing business with someone like him. And they just did not care. They went and did the business anyway. We now have an enormous amount of transparency into what happened there because Deutsche Bank got punished uh, a couple of weeks ago by the New York Department of Financial Services, which disclosed a whole lot about this. And they they just did not care, like literally did not care that they were, get, they were not only getting into bed with someone with a very bad reputation, but they were likely doing business with someone in a way that allowed him to continue his uh yeah criminal activities yeah, yeah. To, to sexually uh, traffic women and girls i mean this is it's not again it's it's really bad i mean trump look no one thought trump was actually going to be elected president 
yes, he had a bad credit record. Yes, he had uh, ties in the past to the mob. But look, there are a lot of characters out there in the world who get loans from banks that do not have good track records and default on their loans. Epstein, though, really was in a kind of class of his own. And from a risk management standpoint and a reputation management standpoint, the fact that Deutsche Bank, as recently as 2013, was happy to get in bed with him, knowing everything that was out there, and stuck with him until like last summer, right before he got arrested. Yeah. And that, that mm-hmm. is just shocking. And it's employees at the bank in the money anti-money laundering division repeatedly raised concerns about this, raised concerns about him in general, and raised concerns about specific transactions he and his LLCs were doing. And they, they just got overruled over and over again. And so it's well, really, it's, it's, that's really bad. There's no excuse for it at all. It's bad. Sometimes it comes with a powerful ask connected to it, right? And so this is what allows people to, or institutions, um, to not care <laughs> because there's some, it, it, you know, there's a powerful ask behind it. There's some other kind of business that can come in because of it or some promise made. I'm not saying that's, that's the truth in this case, but that's the truth in a lot of, a lot of these it, things. It was definitely lucrative. Right. It's it's lucrative, but also it's connected to all these other things. Yeah. If we want these other clients, then we have to do work with this client. And so, it, you know, in, in time, David, we don't know each other, but I'm a screenwriter. So in my industry, it's, you know, it's packaging. <laughs> they, oh, I put it. Yeah. they literally package. Right. So if you want if you want this, if you want, uh, you know, and they'll and and agencies will get in there and they'll reverse a the package. Right. So it's like if you want this. Uh, you want us to put our talent on this um, project, then you're going to have to hire all these other people out of our agency. And if you don't do that, because we care about this client so much, we're going to fuck up this deal over here that no, that you care about even more. Look, this was it was a lucrative relationship on its face, right? Because they were charging big fees and they were charging interest rates on their loans, yada yada yada. But you you may well be that might you might actually be hitting the nail on the head. And there's Epstein was the best connected sexual predator in the world, probably. And he had, up until the day of his arrest, had very strong relationships with a lot of very wealthy, very powerful people all over the world. And it may be yeah. that that Yeah. So- yeah, uh, blackmailing something, we think. Sense. It makes so. sense. Um, well, it's less blackmail. It's Deutsches in the middle, right? <laughs> they're the- they're the vehicle. They're the laundering vehicle. And they do these, they did this shit like mirror trains. I mean, they just were like, there was no, there's nothing even fancy about it. They stopped almost doing yeah. the derivatives and just saying, yeah, we'll take the money from this crime lord over here, or this terrorist. And we'll just, here, here's your real estate money. It's like, it was like, it was just this pass through, right? Um, and I just, it, it just all that I've studied, you know, usually there's something else connected to that where you got something that looks so on the surface, like how could you even ethically get past this? And you have people internally raising yeah. flags and saying, no, don't do this, don't, you know, and then the guys at the top are like, yeah, you don't really know. Now, I know Ackerman mm-hmm. was gone by that time, but I have a real problem with this guy. I think you did an amazing job with your book, really showing, really creating a villain. <laughs> and and there's also a love story in, in your book, which I think it's, People should get it. It's a friendship. And um, I always look for this kind of storytelling, right? This is kind of stuff that really appeals to me as someone whose whole work is adapting. Not that I'm going to adapt your book, but um, I look, okay, where, where's the human? Where's my way in? 
where's the human story in this where as a as that the audience can connect to and we can follow it and you really found humanity inside deutsche bank which was almost impossible right with this friendship between the two men and that both yeah. it just ended in tragedy in tragedy yeah. so um i'd love for you to talk about those two guys really quick because yeah almost because I mean, we lost because deutsche lost them then it yeah. could just be ackerman's foil of just like just money yeah. at all costs ends justify the means just go right it just is yeah. the guy that works for us so we're talking about these two guys bill brooksmith and uh, edison that, mitchell right and, why don't you tell us a little bit more about him, about them, David? So, I mean, Edson, these guys both came from Merrill Lynch, which was this very aggressive firm that you guys probably all know. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, Deutsche Bank decided in the mid-90s that it really wanted to get big on Wall Street. And so it hired Edson, who is this derivative salesman, kind of a little bit out of central casting. I mean, he very charismatic, pretty impulsive, um, a real, but a real kind of visionary leader not one for details so much, but someone who was really ambitious and really motivated. And Bill Brooksmith was his best friend. They had both grown up in, you know, not poverty at all, but in like middle to lower middle class America. And Brooksmith was the son of a Midwestern minister. And Brooksmith was like everything that Edson was not. So he was very cerebral and introverted, very detail oriented. He was uh, an expert in kind of the financial minutia of derivatives and really a pioneer of the modern derivatives market. He was an expert yeah. risk manager. And so he and Edson both professionally and personally just really like meshed together and filled in each other's voids. And they, I think they really loved each other. Um, and I they both- their families came together. Yeah. I mean, they were- it was yeah, a popular sometimes in business you have a marriage like that like yeah. real soulmates find each other and yeah. and they're able to work together yeah, yeah it's really i mean it and they work together but they also like they they spend so much time together out of the office too and really knew each other in a way that i think is really rare even just taking the banking stuff out of it i think it's really rare and so they together and edson wasn't edson was the boss but bill was his kind of right-hand man and together they built deutsche bank from nothing into one of the kind of leading investment banks in the world in a period of uh you know not very long and then in two th at the very end of 2000 uh right around christmas edson was flying home to his family in maine and he was in this little his own little personal plane and it crashed into a mountain and he got killed and that was First of all, I mean, that was the second death at Deutsche Bank of one of their leaders in, you know, in a decade, basically. And so this second kind of decapitation of the bank really led, it led to an internal power struggle that really unleashed all the bad things you see on Wall Street and in banking. Yeah. And then for Bill, that was basically the beginning of the end of Bill Brooksmith's career in banking. And he retired for, I guess, seven or eight years before being lured back to Deutsche Bank uh, by um, Joe Ackerman's successor, Anshu Jain. And it, so Brooksmith goes back to Deutsche Bank and is, is, again, like this leader in risk management. And more than that, though, he was kind of the guy to whom people would go when they had a problem that they needed help on and they needed ethical advice. And his he really always had stuck by his Midwestern roots and his, his the, the wisdom his father, the minister, had passed on to him. And he became known as kind of the ethical compass of the bank and the moral conscience 
of the bank. And he was involved in trying to clean up or deal with in various ways a whole lot of very shady stuff that had gone on at the bank. And and Bill ultimately, and I think had some severe mental health issues and really internalized the the problems that the bank was having and and the, you know i'm not really giving anything away this is public and uh but he ends up at the beginning of 2014 committing suicide and so these two men who had done who had really both been pretty good leaders i think in in an institute in an institution in an industry that was really bad uh they had stood out as kind of the good guys i think they had definitely made mistakes along the way but they were good guys and they both meet these just tragic ends. And tragic ends. I, I think it's that Deutsche Bank really was so corrupt. It had always been a corrupt. If, if in your DNA is that you you were the banking force behind Auschwitz, right? Behind death camp, yep. worker camps, right? Um, you're fucked up. I'm sorry. It, it's you're, There's corruption in there, in your DNA that's like... Right. And it, it did the, the environment, the culture and Ackerman and his sort of, you know, go, 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 just make anything um, ruin these two men. And I think because Mitchell, I don't know if, if Brooksman said this or I'm remembering this from something and it was in your book. I remember this from something else that I knew of someone who I knew who who, who perished in, a, in their private plane crash and whose family said, well, the money killed him. Right. Just killed him because he yeah. started living a life in a way that opened him up. Oh, I'll just take a, you know, I'm not supposed to fly now, but I'll just take a plane now because I have a private plane. I can just get where I want to go. So that's what was going on with Mitchell is what I got from your book. And Brooks, it was just, he got dumped into, yeah. the bank was in so much trouble. He got actually pivoted and dumped into the worst part of Deutsche Bank, where all Trump's shit was, by the way. And, yep. and there were federal investigations and there was pressure on him. And I don't know that he could even, here's a brilliant man who could sort of figure his way out of anything. I don't know that he could find his way out of that much corruption, that much of a horror show inside that bank. And he, it was- anyone could. Anyone could, no. And it was, it yeah. took him out. I was going to say, just going to the to the the history and the DNA of Deutsche Bank. I was watching Casablanca a couple of weeks ago, which I've seen it a million times because it's the best movie ever. And there's the scene as soon the first time you see Humphrey Bogart, um, he's like in the sort of casino room, and he's either saying yes, let them in, or no, don't let them in. And the guy comes in and he he shakes his head, and the guy that he doesn't let in is like, do you know who I am? You know, and and he comes over and he says. Yes, I do. You're lucky the bar is open to you. And later, like a minute later, Peter Laurie <laughs> okay. says, oh, I saw how you did with Deutsche Bank. And it's like, oh, my God. Deutsche Bank. Nothing has changed. There, and, and, and what's wow. remarkable about that is Casablanca, I believe it came out in 1942. So it's the middle of yes. World War II. Mm-hmm. And even yeah. then, they Deutsche Bank was so synonymous with German military aggression that it gets this wonderful cameo in the greatest movie of all time. And there's, uh, yeah, it was someone had told me about that. And then I actually like spent, a, I, I had never picked up on that until I started researching the book and I went and, I didn't either, you know, yeah. the script. and it, it's, it was really, it made me like that wonderful movie even more than I already did. <laughs> Eric. So, so we've been doing a lot of understatement because this story all over the place gestures broadly and around universe. It's hard to make this shit up. So you kind of just plain old <laughs> statements of fact seem like uh, an, enough to tell the story uh, for one day, right? Um, 
and there, there's lots of that, but I have some some more conspiratorial thoughts um, based on some of my professional background. I come from the competitive intelligence world, helping corporations and some government type agencies manage risk, see opportunities and reduce liabilities uh, through an intelligence methodology. And one of the things that sticks out is when there's any organization that doesn't seem to have any sensitivity to the things that would make almost every other organization. And I don't mean small mom and pop shops, but like, you know, steel foundries, pharmaceutical companies, billion dollar organizations, tens, hundreds of thousands of employees, etc. They would go. Syria, the Burmese military, genocide, mm, maybe not genocide. Genocide sounds like it has some downsides, you know, on the, you know, the balanced scorecard matrix for the board of directors. Genocide's going to not look good potentially, you know. Uh, so we would, we, we would look at things a little less uh, obvious than that uh, in, in, in my field. And going through the book, uh, especially once you get to the, the part where you're talking about the, the quote, anti-money laundering um unit at Deutsche where they hired real professionals from other places that didn't yeah. have DNA that they used to well back in the day we used to melt down the gold from Jewish people's teeth in order to finance the Nazis they didn't come from those organizations they came from other ones and they're looking um this one is going to this notorious oligarch you should look at that and that the Deutsche Bank people are like ah eh, it's good send it and they're like yeah okay from my perspective, that was the kind of thing that we tried to suss out. Like, hmm, how is this whole Bashar al-Assad thing going to go? Probably bad, you know? How's the new Iraqi regime? Or, uh, yeah. you know, do we want to get mixed up with the Iranian, uh, uh, you know, Al-Quds force? Do we want to? Eh, maybe not. But these guys, every single life. thing is a, is a green light. And they've got all these connections to the Kremlin. And I'm like, what makes you so cocksure? that you're going to you're going to bet hundreds of millions of dollars at a time on things that most people would blink at at the very least. Well, Germans never get anything what? wrong. I mean, that's one of the, the <laughs> that's what the, one of their commitments to the, to their brand, right? It's it, it's a good it's a good joke, but I've had German clients and they're the people that make it's like, no, you don't know, it's not 1 2 3 section 4. It's 1.0.1. 1. 0. 1. Right. 1.0.2. And that is why you trust them to build medical devices and bridges and stuff. So, they're actually really anal retentive about about risk, yeah. but not these guys who were the one dudes over there working with the Kremlin. And they're able to throw themselves into every risky thing possible. Yeah and come out okay and what's the one thing that separates them is russian intelligence i i can't make the causality leap there but reading around that of all the places where they are risk intolerant or rather written risk insensitive they're like ah, let's go let's do it it'll be great and it doesn't destroy them the way it does everyone else i go is this organization a tool of a very powerful organization itself that has a lot of uh, subterfuge and knows how to do things covertly. Those are the questions that remain in classified dossiers yeah. that I'm now really interested in. Uh, well, or the simpler and less kind of conspiratorial explanation is that there is, it was, which again, I don't know which is right, but they, which is that they were run by a bunch of essentially looters for a long time. And took enormous risks that they should have gotten busted for both by financial markets and investors, but also by regulators. And mm -hmm. in fact, there was so much kind of ineptitude both in the markets 
and certainly by the regulators. And look, the Fed, the Federal Reserve has known about and kind of been slapping Deutsche Bank's wrist gently for almost 20 years on its Russian money laundering activities. And yet the Russia, the, the Fed has not done anything about it. They, you know, they'll they'll impose these kind of pipsqueak penalties on the bank over and over again and then wonder why nothing changes when the Fed has an enormous amount of leverage over these guys. And the Fed, theoretically, if it wanted to really like scare them, could threaten to revoke the bank's operating license in the United States, which would essentially be the death knell for the bank. And they have not, to my knowledge, done that. And in fact, talking to Deutsche Bank executives who have been in contact with the Fed over the years, this, isn't, this is going back probably 10 or 15 years, they were always surprised that the Fed didn't come down harder on them and frankly thought that that, that actually increased their risk appetite. Because if the Fed's not going to do anything about this, sure, we don't want to get caught. It's embarrassing. Yeah. We have to pay a small penalty. But like, what is the real I, damage? That sort, of that sort of reinforces what Eric was saying. That sort of reinforces Drug cartels. They're, they're laundering money for gun runners. They're the starting they, wars. The they're they're keeping government. genocide going. And and isn't that what our Fed is supposed to shut down? Yes, it is. And they have done a very bad job at that, clearly. Like, and the German regulators are even worse. And one of the interesting things, though, to me is that if you go back pre-2008, so pre-global financial crisis, you see a lot more banks doing a lot more like truly like evil geopolitical stuff. I mean, you have BNP Paribas, the big French bank, that actively mm -hmm. financed uh, the Sudanese genocide. You have HSBC, yeah. which is for which for a time was no the more. world's worst. Yeah, and they were they were financing murderous criminal gangs, drug runners, and like very right. bad governments all over the world for a long time. What That's changes right. for the most part after two thousand eight, after the financial crisis, and after the European financial crisis as well, is that these banks recognize that there is more to risk management than simply looking at financial profits and losses. There, you also need to consider reputational risk. And in part because the US has become much more aggressive about enforcing the law all over the world. And so you see at that point, that banks like BNP Paribas or HSBC really pull back from some of the truly murderous stuff that they had been doing. And you see even JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs pulling back, which is why JP Morgan dumps someone like Jeffrey Epstein. And Deutsche Bank was unfazed by that, as far as I can tell, and really, like, until very recently, the past couple of years, has not even had reputational risk really as part of its kind of day-to-day -day vocabulary. And it, and that's, you really, it's, it's, it's a missed opportunity to defend the institution, to not be looking at the reputational impact of these things. That would have kept them out of bed with Donald Trump, Jeffrey Epstein, Syria, Iran, Russia, I mean... You know, they would have missed out on a lot of profits. But right now, we wouldn't be sitting here on a Friday night talking about how evil they are. So let's just be clear about this. In your thesis, after studying all of this, you think that the, the ability for Donald Trump to be who he is today, to have become the president of the United States, was that enabled by Deutsche Bank? Could it have happened if it weren't for Deutsche Bank? I don't know if it could have happened were it not for Deutsche Bank. It was certainly enabled by Deutsche Bank. And Trump, Trump was able to bounce back repeatedly from financial ruin because of Deutsche Bank. And he was able on the campaign trail in 2015 and 2016 to say accurately that he wasn't such a failed businessman after all, despite all of his defaults and bankruptcies. Just look at the fact that he has one of the world's biggest banks having a great relationship with him. And he, he trotted out that argument over and over again. And he was right. I and mean, that's the crazy thing. He was right. And it, 
it allowed him to build some of the kind of marquee properties that he used as uh, campaign props, in particular, the old post office building, the, his big Washington hotel right down the street from the White House. And that's Deutsche Bank's money at work right there. The big Chicago tower that was a prop, uh, the Doral Golf Resort where oh, he wanted to- Oh, uh, that was but the apprentice. But you know, the, the, the interesting thing there for me is he, yeah. he, he's German, right? I mean, he's uh, Frederick uh, Trump was German. Uh, he, yep. The grandfather, I don't know, yeah. that, that was Frederick too. And you've got a, a German bank funding a German a guy from German heritage who then assumes power in the in the United States. I'm not suggesting anything that that was a plan or anything like that, but was he favored by them because of his German heritage? No, I don't think so. I don't think that would be almost like too principled and patriotic for the bank. And I don't <laughs> think they cared very much. That was what mattered. I'm going to feed uh, Eric Garland's uh, conspiracy here a little bit because this is a. I was uh, googling around today. Look at this old picture of Merkel and uh, Putin. They've known each other for a long time, a very, very long time. They're good friends. Um, so who knew that? Um, that's just uh, just to feed Eric. He, he appreciates that. Look, in a while. I'm not the Come on. Ackerman had this, and look, I've talked to Ackerman about this in recent years, and his argument oh. for why he was so cozy with the Russians is. Look, and I think there's this is a certain amount of bullshit, but there's he he Ackerman considers himself more of a statesman than a banking a banker. And his so his argument is that Deutsche Bank as the leading bank for the leading economy in Europe had kind of a political and almost social rock responsibility to help integrate Russia yeah, into obligation. Right. Right. <laughs> And look, it makes sense. I mean, the, Russia, Russia is on their border. Right? They need a successful that's, Russia. That's a Rand Paul thing. That's, that's right. what Rand Paul says. It's engagement. It's engagement. We're going to engage well, Russia. That's what look, just, we, you know. say that, we say that from our vantage point in America. And But the reality is they do share a border. And Russia and Germany have been at war repeatedly. And I do think, and that's why you've got pictures of Merkel and Putin like looking kind of chummy what looks like 20 years ago together. Yeah. And there's a long history of these two countries. So, I mean, on the other hand, that does not at all explain the fact that Ackerman thought it would be a good idea to basically partner with VTB, the Russian spy bank, over many years and kind of swap executives back and forth and swap money back and forth repeatedly and launder a bunch of money for Russian oligarchs. That is not, you know, there's a limit to the explanation. That it doesn't, doesn't really, especially that You've put the time. You've already you, you've already put the the, the dates on there because we got to go back to 2011. So about a couple of years after you know Obama takes power and realizes how much financial attack this country is un, under by the right. mob by by foreign intelligence and Bob Mueller Robert S Mueller the third comes out with Obama in 2011. He signs an emergency executive order declaring war right. not on a nation but on transnational organized crime and he yep. starts with the Vori Zakone, the Brafa, the the Russian brothers circle and then he goes down and Drangheta, right. the Chinese triads. Oh, he's you know he's got his intel he actually takes his intel briefings and they'll give them to him because he passes for a clearance uh and so does his vice president and all that and it's like you are the our system has been attacked by a, a mix of hostile foreign intelligence and organized crime money like we've never seen before. And on 2011, yes. they start shutting the pipes off. And by late 2012, uh, you, you know, after he's elected for a second time, the Magnitsky Act is passed. And then Ackerman is still ready to go take a job with, with Russia. Yep. 
in 2013. You you can't be in that catbird seat. You cannot be in that position and know what money is is going through your institution and know what money is being choked off. This is why Russia went for the throat on us after 2012. After we went for Magnitsky, causality, whatever, they went for our throat in 2016 and we ended up with their bitch, Donald Trump, in the White House. (laughs) And we missed it. And, missed it. and but with the, it starts like, with the cash. How can starts, how can we end with, on anything more than that? It, it, it's a great ending. It's yeah. a great ending. But, but, great but ending. actually, if I can if I can pimp the book some more here, I mean yes. it does because the yes. final the final chapter what it, uh, almost like Rogue if you see Star Wars. No, no, it's 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 in there. It's it's not it's it's not a surprise. We're okay, all living okay. through it. Rogue One, Star Wars, ends with, oh my God, it's they're boarding the ship. That's Darth Vader. This is the start of episode four. This thing ends with Glenn Simpson and yeah. Fusion GPS. And then it ends with, hey, they're starting it. What? So what's up with Trump and Deutsche Bank? And ta-da, the aristocrat. The aristocrat. So you should go and buy um, that book right now. You can order it on Amazon or wherever yeah, you buy your I, books. It's a I, terrific read. And sorry, go ahead. It's terrific. And buy, I just want to say buy it, right? Because um, I do know that, David, your book is... Uh, I think I looked at it. It was like, okay, I could get it free on Audible, which is great because that helps. Audible helps all those other authors and it raises the platform. But honestly, everybody, you, you got to support the people like David who are going out there and busting their ass for years and putting all this together and sourcing the hell out of it and trying to be understated so he doesn't get sued, but also so that it can't be poked at it can't be weaponized right it can't mm-hmm. be turned into a piece of propaganda because david did such a damn good job telling the story and you're gonna get you. all these characters you're so welcome I, I so 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 am impressed with with how what you did with this book and so i want people to buy it there Go buy the book. Totally hey, catch. <laughs> i i agree second the motion all right, I think we all agree. It's a, it's yeah. a terrific read, and it's, Thank uh, you guys. it's a huge I really book. Appreciate it. Um, well, thanks very much for coming on the show. Hopefully, we'll have you back here at some point, uh, just to either to promote your next book or just to chat with us. It's been terrific having you on the show, uh, and I think uh, the audience got a lot out of this. Uh, we certainly did, learning a lot about uh, Deutsche yeah. Bank. The book is called Dark Towers by David Enrich, and thanks very much for joining us tonight, David. Thanks a lot for having me. This was fun. Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Mm-hmm.